Hello and welcome to the Lost Gardens of Heligan podcast, Beauty in All Things. My name's Alastair Moore, Head of Gardens and Estate, and in this, our summer season podcast, I'll be sharing with you the delights of piglets, our gorgeous flower garden, and the endless work done by our dedicated maintenance team to keep the fourth bridge of maintenance on track. But before all those things, we're heading off to a very special field to talk about wheat. The summer solstice is one of the key markers in the year, and as I look across Valentine's, I can see the pattern of Jamie Reed's over mown into the wheat. Most people would know Jamie through his groundbreaking artwork for the Sex Pistols. And while punk rock may seem a long way from Heligan, Jamie is also profoundly connected to our ancient relationship with the land, nature and seasons. Since the late 80s, Jamie has identified himself with the over, essentially an encircled A for anarchy and V for victory. But it also refers to the druidic concept of the eightfold year of festivals including the two solstices, two equinoxes, and four other important markers, Samwen, Imbolc, Beltane, and Lammas, each point being an important conjunction of time and of place in our celestial movement. The Ova is all about growth and healing, and it's also a path for folk to walk around when they visit Halligan. Last year, it was a brilliantly coloured display of cornfield annuals, such as corn marigold, cornflower. It was ultimately a 12-acre summer banquet for pollinating insects, as well as a feast for our own senses. This year, we have brought a human crop to the party and sown a heritage wheat amongst the flowers, food for people as well as pollinators. After all, the big question that faces us as a species is how do we feed ourselves and allow the planet to heal, to regenerate? And this year, this is what Valentine's is all about. The good news is that there is a beautiful, heavy sward of wheat and flowers. The linear rows of wheat, underplanted, as it were, with cornfield annuals. The bad news is that we've had no rain for weeks. The wheat is called Emma wheat, E-double-M-E-R. And Emma wheat has a long and illustrious history in terms of the importance of this crop to the development of our world, to, to humans, to human civilization. And I'm leaning on this gate because I'm waiting for Andrew Ormerod a friend and true plant boffin who's going to explain to us the profound significance and importance of Emma Wheat. And here comes Andrew now. Good timing, Andrew. How are you? Fine, thank you. Very good. Well, here we are at Valentine's and I've said a little bit about Emma Wheat, but Andrew, you will bring a little more expertise than I. So I'm just going to ask you, Andrew, why should we be excited or even interested 
in Emma Wheat? Well, it's very much affected the way that we live today, actually, quite simply. The development of civilization is all interwoven with Emma and other what's termed founder crops of the Fertile Crescent and how they've spread over Europe and the rest of the world. Okay, can I start with just, could you define what you mean by the Fertile Crescent? Yes, yeah, it's a crescent of land and it includes Israel, Palestine, Jordan, up through Iraq and Syria to Iran. And it was a fertile area of land. The climate was very different thousands of years ago. Basically, it was much more like a lush Mediterranean climate. And you say thousands of years ago. How long ago are we talking about Emma wheat becoming a cultivated crop? Ah, right. OK, there's there's actually, can I untwist un- that? There's two things. Course, the or- untwist, Andrew. <laughs> All right. OK, so there's the origin of Emma and there's the origin of it as a cultivated crop. So Emma arose... 360,000 years ago and it arose because there was a cross with one of the other founder crops another wheat um, species found in the fertile crescent which was called einkorn because it had one grain per set of um, um, thingies on the head (laughs) worlds of of grain anyway yes so this is all before in the wild wild yes it was a wild fling actually (laughs) that einkorn had a wild fling with a goat grass called agilips tauchii which you'd probably wouldn't think of as being a food plant and uh, it produced wild emma so both of these plants were just wild grasses they were annual grasses and they shed their seeds at the end of the year. So we're now turning our attention to the people who live there, who were hunter-gatherers. And um, they were very lucky, really, because um, they lived in this rather lush parkland uh, with um, oak trees and pistachio around. Mm. And uh, so they collected the seeds of lots of things. But they were they were fortunate in that... Um, Some of these grasses had fairly large seeds and some of the legumes had large seeds. But it does seem that um, as populations expanded of people, there was a bit more pressure on what they could hunt. Things like gazelle were becoming more scarce. So they actually started changing their diets. Sorry to interrupt. Where are we now in our dateline? We started off back 300,000 years ago. Whereabouts are we now? We're about 30-ish thousand years to 23,000 years. And we we know that the diet changed because someone at a camp on the Sea of Galilee, which was formed of um, six round houses made out of brush and wood, unfortunately their village caught fire. You know, you've got this thing where... <laughs> that has been tested like I, I thought you put the fire out. <laughs> no, it was your job. <laughs> anyway, it was a terrible catastrophe, and their houses all burnt down. But what we know is um, everything was preserved because it was charred, and then um, covered by silt by the Sea of Gallery, right. which was rising, and no one knew about it from twenty three thousand years ago. That's three hundred over three hundred 
granny and grandpa's worth ago well, in terms of Heligan visitors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too long ago to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, um, it got covered in silt until 1989 when there was a, a bit of a drought and people were able to find the site. And they found one particular hut which had a, a quern for processing grain. And that sort of a quern is like a grindstone. A grindstone, in a, way, a grindstone, but yes. Not a wheel. Yeah. No, 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 sorry, um, a grindstone, yeah, grindstone for processing grain. And it's quite extraordinary. It's built into the wall of the hut and uh, away from the door. And there's a sort of like a U shaped halo, if you like, of grains that archaeologists were able to analyse. And they found Emma there. That was the first time that they found Emma in. In quantity, not in large quantities. They were still harvesting lots of small grains then at that time. But they did include barley and they did include emma. But from then on, 23,000 years ago onwards, it seems that the amount of larger grains like emma and iron corn, which is another wheat, and, and barley increased. And it was still harvested from the wild. When So they're wild harvested. Mm. When do we start, as we're looking across Valentine's, lush and green now, thank God, after some rain, when would the first, you know, if we were wandering in the Fertile Crescent, when would we come across mm. the first thing that we might recognise as a field mm. of Emma wheat? Yeah. Um, this is really interesting because actually the philosophy about what, um, happened with human settlement has changed over the years and hunter-gatherers used to go around and collect from the wild they probably would have some kind of container and they'd beat the grain into it and then bring it back but uh, even now in recent years what's been found is that settlements have been uh, constructed 19,000 years ago that were not temporary they were actually for longer term stays so the thing about the Fertile Crescent is that people began to settle um, and then go out and hunt and gather, uh, f- uh, particularly the Natufian group of people in Jordan and Israel and places like that, uh, near water. So there was a, this gradual process, rather than it being a yeah. revolution. Suddenly, oh, let's, yeah, 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 let's, yeah, yeah. let's have a field. Yeah, yeah because, because the uh, assumed view is that there was this revolution in the Neolithic era, 11,000 years ago. And I don't know if it was a Tuesday or Wednesday. <laughs> it, I don't think that's what people think now. Yeah. I think it's more of an evolutionary process, a move towards. So I would say people were, they, you know, they had their dump heaps near houses, so they'd grow more horticultural crops there. And, and gradually, one of the things is if you settle near water and you, you have a more permanent settlement, you can have a larger family. And it was probably a combination of climate change and an ease which led to people actually cultivating and sowing. Because after all said and done, that involves work. And I have been told the word work may not have existed before then. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, happy days. Exactly, yes, yeah. So what we're looking at is a more intensive cultivation from about 11,000 years ago. And some people have said that it's linked to a colder, drier spell called the Younger Dryas, which was all the cycles of what happened were affected by the, you know, ice age, basically, and either 
post ice age or um during the ice age so right. earlier was when the ice age was at its maximum but anyway there was a cold dry period and either during or just after that's when really farming took off so um but having said the, the uh, talked about the the sort of glory days as it mm. were of emma wheat yeah. and its development yeah. yes um obviously it's quite an unusual wheat relatively um, certainly in this country now. So what what yeah. brought about the decline? Why why did we stop okay. growing Emma wheat? Well, this is the thing you can you can have um, thousands and thousands of years in one sentence. So I think give uh, it a go. Yes, okay. <laughs> so at the at the beginning, say eleven thousand years ago onwards, first of all, people were cultivating, you know cereals and what have you and they were getting what we now term the farming package together there's lots of things going on in the in the near east of asia so you've got livestock being domesticated like sheep and cattle um and you've got nine founder crops including emma there yeah and i think it was actually from traveling around and from people coming along and um with tails who were trying to sell um, cowrie, not sell, but you know, some some kind of barter, cowrie shells and obsidian right. obviously might have helped. Anyway, when um, farming got going, the first thing is that it was all the grains that were being grown, including Emma, were wild. And we know now that the domesticated form, it's just a mutation that stops the grains falling off the, right. the ears, basically. Which makes it. Yeah. Much better to harvest. Yeah, you don't lose your, exactly. your crop, basically. Yeah. And for a long time, there was a theory that this was, you know, farmers, early farmers actually selected deliberately. But it seems now, looking at archaeological remains, that this took thousands of years. So you had fields right. full of wild emma, but with some that was domesticated. So they weren't putting a lot of effort into it. And the interesting thing is, how do we know, mm. actually... But I, I mean, would part of the process have been it's more harvestable, and so if you were saving seed, inevitably you're going to save more of that seed than the one that distri- distributes itself naturally. And then I suppose if you're if you are mobile, mm. if you're moving around, mm. the seed you'll take with you again mm. is more likely. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense, and that was the view that originally, uh, when the emma was harvested and it was fairly ripe, it would be taken to community and then threshed on the threshing floor. And the idea was that en route, you know, uh, it got shooken about a bit, yeah. and the wild emma would drop its seed, uh, so it would have some kind of preferential effect. And that may well be the effect. But the thing is, it wasn't deliberately done, no. and it seems as it was thousands of years, which is quite extraordinary. And the, the reasons we know all this, particularly in the Fertile Crescent area, is because old settlements grew up from very small campsites, and basically people got fed up with their houses. You know, it's so last mm-hmm. year, you know. <laughs> so they they basically changed from using wooden frame roundhouses to clay houses and when they got a bit worn out or the you know yeah. it just wasn't right color anymore <laughs> they'd squish them and with all the debris they actually managed to create a bit of a pile yeah. uh, and and then that grew as they built a new one on top so throughout the whole fertile crescent there are these 
what we call tells. So a bit like in, for example, the capital of Israel is called Tel Aviv. That's wow, because okay. it's a, a, a mound of earth, yeah. which is basically, it's like, um, what can we say, some kind of layer cake, basically. Mm. So as you dig down, you go down into deeper layers. And so from an exploration standpoint, there's some very simple kit, which is basically an oil drum with water in it and a hose pipe. And, and basically you can float particles from the mud and the stones and that's how they get the grains and from doing that they can see whether the grain is wild or domesticated because when you look under the microscope you can see if the scar at the base of the grain is actually from a wild grain or if it's a domesticated one so that and the other bit of detective info whether there's lots of um weed seeds of agriculture indicates whether it was actually wild collected or if it was grown so that's how we know and then um what happened then was people their families grew settlements grew and then um they got wealthier and then they developed other things like irrigation and pottery came along (laughs) later and we're talking about around six thousand years ago i think that sort of period right. and the wheel and then um what happened was that although there was work involved it didn't involve everyone so you got hierarchies developing and you got uh villages growing into small cities so you had someone who had to be a leader and religion and religious or- organizations and city walls and all that that's why emma and all the founder crops are the basis of the modern way that we live today or if you like talking about cities civilization so emma and particularly barley played an important part as cereals food food cereals that supported all that civitas the civilization that lived in cities and towns okay so this is the very foundation of yeah of human experience for the past few millennia. Absolutely, yeah. And and what happened was that although people had ways of storing it earlier, the the stores grew bigger. And that actually meant that some people who were spare from actually harvesting the crop, they got other jobs as artisans. So they made weapons and things like that. And people became a bit feisty and they started (laughs) persuading other people that they needed to take over their land and actually that they should be farming rather than hunting and gathering. So this is the basis of the spread of um, the civilization. Well, in colonial, imperial um, uh, designs. Right across Europe, right over to China, etc. And and Go on. So, sorry, I was just going to interrupt that point. One, to point out that we at Heligan are not growing Emma wheat in order to um, develop our colonial no. ambitions <laughs> but i what I, I i'm just going to interrupt you there mm. absolutely fascinating as it is but just to bring it at breakneck speed to the 21st century and say well that is genuinely fascinating but why should we be growing it now okay so there's a you know if you look at the global situation with wheat heritage wheats are absolutely tiny because at the moment bread wheat forms 95% of what we eat and nearly 5% is another pasta wheat wheat durum which is very closely related to emma. So Andrew just to get my head straight 
Emma Wheat, is it, you know, to put it really basically, is it pasta wheat or is it bread wheat? It's neither, actually. Oh. It's, it's complicated, but it, it plays a major part in both. So pasta wheat is actually a... It's almost like a mutation of Emma that happens naturally. Emma, like some of the other early wheats, has got um, a hull. In other words, a husk sticks to the grain, so you have to have an extra process. So pasta wheat, or durum wheat, is actually a, what they term a free-threshing wheat. So it's, it's very like Emma, but it means that when you harvest it, the grain is actually free of any husk, so you don't have to have that extra process. Right. They, I think they've both got rather glassy starch, um, which gives them certain properties when you, you, you bake. But Emma also is likely to be the parent. It's either Emma or... Or, or pasta wheat that is the parent of bread wheat and what we know is that about eight and a half to nine thousand years ago there was another fling between something that was either um pasta or emma it, if it was if it some people say it was a sort of like another sport of emma was um without the husk on basically it it had a fling with the goat grass Again, another fling with the goat grass. Yeah, I know. Different one, different species mm-hmm. of goat grass, and it was near the Caspian Sea, and they they know that because archaeology, but also because the goat grass in question lives near the Caspian Sea, mm-hmm. um, just below it, and it's an area where Emma doesn't grow wild, so it was actually being farmed. So farming, and yes. the Caspian Sea. Yes, that's right. So what what happened? This is really fascinating what resulted from either an, a, a form of emma or um, pasta wheat crossing with the goat grass was something that was bigger uh, it was obviously what we know now as bread wheat but it didn't take off for thousands of years actually as a as a crop so emma and uh, barley was still the major crop but when it happened, and it this fling <laughs> that happened only might have happened one or two times, I think, the farmers didn't actually get rid of the uh, the plants. They obviously thought that they were interesting. But we, there's, interestingly enough, we know from contemporary information that, unfortunately, because this fling only happened one or, once or twice, it didn't include very much of the um, important characteristics from the goat grass, which is to do with bread making and disease resistance. So in the 20th century, scientists have actually been remaking this cross deliberately. And what they find is that the uh, resulting bread wheat, if you like, needs sorting out. It's very un- un- unlike a, you know, a bread wheat crop that we would know now. It's got lots of defects in it that need sorting out. So it's probably that it took a, a while for them to... They realised something was valuable, but and they hung on to it, but it wasn't really as desirable as carrying on with the emma and, right. and the barley. But what we know with emma and, and barley in the meantime was that actually if you have a, a tricky growing season, then probably you'd grow more barley than emma. So there was actually more, always more barley than emma. But emma was really desirable, obviously, for making bread and for beer as well, as well as barley. So the Egyptians used it. It was really important in the Egyptian period, period, Emma. 
and also um, the Romans. Actually, the Romans, they were... Um, <laughs> what did the Romans do for us? <laughs> well, they were they were actually termed porridge eaters because they actually ate oh, uh, yes. porridge yes. made from Emma, <laughs> which is quite funny. But uh, but when when you think about it, what happened was people wanted to move and take over more land with, with agriculture because all sorts of things came about, like the idea of ownership of land, etc., and um, the Romans and, and Greeks, particularly the Romans, they grew things like Emma in a different way, more of a horticultural way. Mm-hmm. So they were celebrating the success of single plants in the field when there were huge gaps. So it wasn't very, very efficient, really. It wasn't uh, th- with an agricultural philosophy. So they tended to take over land that was more successful at growing Emma. So like Egypt, for example, <laughs> both both the Greeks and the Romans actually uh, took over Egypt and North Africa as well. And of course, for the Romans, bread Mm. was, you know, bread and games was about... um, Keeping the people happy. Exactly. Yes, it was. It didn't work in the end, but as we know. (laughs) But but uh, um, um, it's important in bread-eating societies today around North Africa and in the Middle East, it's really, really important. And wheat is, as we, mm. as we know, only too yes. well, given the ghastly yeah. Putin and mm. Ukraine, that, yes. you know, wheat drives foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, it was a... a, a this is um, a slight aside, but it was actually partly responsible for the cultural revolution in the uh, in the Middle East because there were concerns over harvest failures and, and lack of wheat supply in places like Egypt that causes riots, yeah. But anyway, getting back to the situation um, in the in the Fertile Crescent and uh, with um, growing societies, and one, one, one problem was um, irrigation was great, obviously, and in Egypt you had these marvellous innovations like the Shadouf, which was for lifting water from one level to another, but it actually resulted in salinization, and so that meant that. Just explain the salinization that that mm. uh, you know recycling yeah. of yeah. of of water and land and how that works. Because when you think about salina- uh, the salinization of land, mm. salination, you think of seawater and salts, mm. and, but that's this is something totally different. Well, it is. It is actually the obviously salts coming to the surface, yeah. and it's really a, a result of irrigation and the water evaporating, and then um, not uh, the salts not being washed away. Mm-hmm. So, what that resulted in, in both you know in the Near East and also in 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 the Indus in in India, was uh, it, you know they had to rely more on barley actually at that time. But in the meantime, the farming philosophy was moving out of the uh, the Fertile Crescent, and basically it moved in two directions. Some of the earliest movements were... were, It's difficult to say. There was the sort of signs of things going on in Cyprus between nine and ten and a half thousand years ago. So some some activities were going on really early. So what what was interesting was people were taking off with... um, you know, farming, you know, the farming package, including Emma wheat, for lands unknown <laughs> in boats. And they, they started off in Cyprus and then they, they basically moved along the Mediterranean in hops. So it wasn't actually conquering everywhere. And they form a settlement. And then some people have thought that they might move on in a boat, maybe in the autumn after the harvest, 
and also take cattle in calf so they would have a supply of milk to a new location. And the other route was actually on the Danube and the Rhine, going inland into Europe, carrying emma and other crops right into Europe. And it wasn't straightforward. Uh, There are some quite long halts in time. They can look through the archaeological records, Um, partly because they may have met opposition from uh, people who were hunting and gathering, or it might have been because of climate issues. Mm -hmm. But what what happened eventually was, on the Mediterranean journey, the hops along the coast, eventually arrived in uh, Portugal, northern Portugal, about 6,800 years ago. And it seems that Scandinavia and Britain might have been more from inland, the inland route. But we got our farming package, so to speak, about five, five and a half, maybe up to 6,000 years ago here. So this is a, you know, wherever it was, it was a huge change. And one of the questions is, was it done gently or was it done (laughs) with a lot of persuasion? And just to sort of draw back to the question of... What is the value of us growing it at Heligan today? It would be interesting to hear your thoughts about, you know, what this heritage grain, you know, first cultivated 20 to 30,000 years ago, what this heritage grain today brings in terms of benefits and value for us. Yeah, it's the it's quality and taste, actually. That's the key thing, really. You know, there's been a lot of comparison of different heritage grains. And the thing about Emma, when you bake it, is it has um, amazing taste qualities. That's one of the things. So flavour, yes. crucial. Mm. But I know you were saying to me earlier about allergens. Mm. Yes, it's very it's quite complicated actually because there's more than gluten intolerance. There's a whole range of different allergens, and actually, I think what's complicated is that the, there are obviously a, a range of compounds in in cereals, and actually, there's a, a range of genetic variations in humans actually. So it's not one thing, but some of the heritage varieties have got lower levels of allergens, um, particularly einkorn and. And Emma, actually, as well. It's, though, hard to say if it's down to one thing. Um, generally, it's it might be a varietal difference. One of the other wheat types that Emma has been involved with is, is spelt, and that's very popular. In fact, it is a, a cross between bread wheat and Emma, which happened much later, in I, I think in eastern Asia, eastern Mediterranean area, but people rate it very highly because uh, they're so concerned. Sorry, just uh, sorry to interrupt. Yes, again, yes, Andrew. Just to be clear, mm-hmm. so spelt. Yes. Is a cross yes. between yeah. bread wheat yes. and emma. Yeah. Yes, it's an interesting one because you would expect um, that this is the intermediate step between um, emma and bread wheat because it's a whole if you like, very simplistically, a whole version of bread wheat. But it isn't. It seems, because they haven't found any archaeological evidence of that, they seem to suggest that it's actually later, it was another chance cross between bread wheat and emma in the eastern Mediterranean area later. But anyway, a lot of people put, um, you know, are interested in spelt because of its 
potential health qualities and that is true but they it does vary between varieties in terms of gluten intolerance so yeah there are varietal differences so it's it's not hard and fast you have to know which varieties you're consuming sure so the the benefits for us are you know in flavor um but also for those who have intolerances for wheat-based products but is there also uh, a sense that Emma wheat is a more resilient crop given what we may we are facing and this summer is an extremely good example of it the stresses of climate change um Emma is adapted to um low input systems so it's ideal for organic production and it tends to grow in in more marginal land but it does survive you know it is it is because of the le- you know the low inputs it does tend to adapt to s- seasonal variation so to speak so from that standpoint it is it is resilient it tends along with einkorn to be grown in sort of upland areas i think the interesting thing was originally it was actually a crop that was a subsistence crop in a way in the in the 20th century and now it's found new markets because of its flavor basically so it's not just a, a survivor it's also a niche quality yeah. grain yes that's that's right exactly exactly that's right yes yeah i'd say that wonderful well thank you so much andrew that is so fascinating and i feel i keep having to stop you for uh, from t- taking us on an even more interesting journey but um i fear time is not with us but andrew i know well i hope you'll be back on the podcast for um uh other conversations particularly i know we'll um we'll have a chat about cider in the not too distant future but thank you so much for coming in this morning beautiful morning as it is And thank you for your wisdom and uh, eloquence. Thank you very much. So I am now sitting in the flower garden with Andy Wilson, head of maintenance, and Paul Deutsch, one of the merry band of maintenance operatives. And we're in front of the citrus house and the vinery. And if you come and pay us a visit at the moment you'll see there's a bit of work going on obviously the restoration of the gardens was begun in 1990 but it's a process that never stops and uh, Andy and his team at the forefront of that so Andy could I just ask you what has happened to the citrus house and how long will it be being worked upon by your eager team uh, well, mainly the citrus house, it's the front frame that's collapsed. So basically the sill's rotted away, causing the mullions to go through the sill, which has caused the roof to slightly drop. So we're having to make a complete new frame for the front, dismember all the roof, jack the roof up to put the new frame in, uh, and then reglaze it. It's just one of the things each year that we have to um, do to keep on top of the maintenance of all the glass houses, the structures, a bit like the fourth bridge where every year summer time comes nice and dry, 
that we, um, we we can work on the glass houses and it's just a continual uh, rotation of going round. This year it's the flower garden, next year it'll be the melon yard, then Penkelenic and then back to the flower garden. So it's just a rotation of um, keeping on top of the uh, maintenance of the of the structures to keep them looking nice and pristine as though they were look like they've been there for forever. Wonderful. And are these pretty much skills that uh, have remained the same since these buildings would have been constructed? Yeah, all the joinery construction is all the same. It's all mortise and tenon frames. Um, we are using slightly different timbers now than what they were done originally because obviously you know, there's, there's treatments that you can put on the timbers which will like, make the wood last a lot longer. So we are using, because all the labour is exactly the same as what it would be, so we're just using a different timber that will hopefully last longer so we don't have to start replacing more and more timbers. It's just actually just keeping on top of, on top of the paint system. But, yeah, it's still all the um, historic you know, joints and beaver tail glass that we're doing. Uh, we've, slightly, we've come away from the putty point in. Um, but we use like a, a, a silicon-based product that we hold the glass in with now. It's just easier, quicker, a lot cheaper, a lot you know, less labour goes into it. Uh, but yeah, everything else really is um, still an oil-based paint that we use on there, which Paul will tell you more about in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still all the heritage crafts that we keep um, keep keep using. Lovely. And Paul, you've been sitting patiently there, but um, Andy mentioned labour. And so when folk come into the flower garden at the moment, the labour they'll see is, is you pinned like Spider-Man to the, to the glass. Could you just talk us through what you've actually been doing, how long you've been doing it for? Yeah, so I've been on this job about five weeks now, and I had um, Ian, our joiner, with me for the first week first stage is to go up there and ascertain what is actually wrong with this particular building i'm now talking about the vinery behind me so initially it's to identify where the rotten wood was ian then came along with me for four days cut out the rotten wood which included the head some of the glazing bars needed replacing some of the sill sections and some of the rafter ends so after four days all of that woodwork was replaced and then it was up to me to basically scrape down the building remove the old top glazing putty remove any broken glass get it to its um, first prep stage after that it's basically a case of getting an oil-based primer on all the bare wood and then start the process of putting the glass back in which I finished two days ago the glass is bedded on linseed oil putty but like Andy referred to we use a more modern cork for the top glazing so after the glass has gone back in which i completed a couple of days ago i'm now on the stage of doing the top glazing putty which you see one of the frames behind us has just been done and i'm working my way down the frames when i get to the end i'll start at the beginning again (laughs) and um, that will be a process of painting Um, we use oil-based paint still it's already had one coat of primer the next stage will be a high build undercoat and then after that if time and weather allows two more gloss coats so as you referred to spider-man i will be up and down these frames (laughs) for quite a few weeks yet but yeah i mean the weather has been fantastic normally we get a short window that allows us to work on these 
projects especially when it comes to the painting but well, I know we need the water for the gardens but yes, this this dry weather certainly helps the maintenance team with cracking on with you know the the repairs of the these wonderful old buildings brilliant thank you paul and um just something i wonder if you can explain a little bit Andy mentioned beaver tail glass now there may be some folks listening to this going what the hell how why are we using beaver tails for for glass um you might be able to kind of fill in a bit of detail on what beaver tail glass is so i can't tell you exactly when it was introduced on these buildings but the peach house for instance i believe is a newer building and that uses straight cut glass whereas the vinery behind us has some people refer to it as beaver tails some people refer to it as fish scale glass which people might be able to visualize more Um, and basically the curvature of the glass is overlapped when it's laid and when it rains and a downpour the water rain naturally as it falls down the panes of glass is naturally drawn to the center of the pane and where the curve at the bottom of the glass is it acts like a drip check running the water down the center of the glass to the bottom of the frames and therefore away from the woodwork so in theory (laughs) i shouldn't have to get up there so often and repair rotten wood brilliant thank you very much paul that's a brilliant uh, explanation and um if you if you you do come and visit give uh, paul a wave as he's uh, uh, scaling the finery citrus house and latterly the peach house andy could i just ask how how long do you anticipate given that there's weather issues etc anticipate the whole project this the completion of the renovation of the citrus house of finery and the peach house um, we've probably got about another, at least I would say, another three months to um, get it all done and finished, especially with having to make a complete new frame for the citrus house. Uh, and obviously, once we've, we've not really started uncovering much in there yet, so uh, obviously we know the front frame's got to be replaced. I think the door frame wants replacing on the far end. So, but yeah, till we actually start dismantling it, we'll then uncover more and more. There's quite a few of the big, large rafters that we will have to laminate because we're really struggling to get some decent timber in the sections that it is. So, um, but yeah, hopefully, um, come the end of um, summertime, before well, hopefully get done before the you know the worst of the weather starts hitting us, which we then we can't really get on with anything. But um, so yeah, hopefully, all being well come the end of summer we shall be completed wonderful well thank you both very much indeed uh for your time <laughs> you haven't got much because andy you're also um while paul's slaving away in the flower garden uh you and the other members of the team are currently doing something something rather different would you like to explain a little bit about that yeah um uh, for yeah for this year we're doing quite a lot of work on our um on the heligan play meadow um, which was always used to be called East Lawn. So down there we've building quite a lot of climbing frames. Uh, we're building like a mini castle at the moment, which will probably have a surprise right at the very top of the tower for children to go and explore. It's got rope bridges on there, hand climbing, fireman's poles. Um, and then next week we're having um, an air pillow installed, um, which I think it's the only, no, there's not many in the country at the moment. Um, definitely no, no other ones in Cornwall, so this is the first in Cornwall. Uh, it's a 20 metre by 10 metre uh, inflatable pillow. 
um, which it's not it's not like a bouncy castle. It's 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 a lot more subtle. You can take up to th- I think it's 38 people that can go on it. So yeah, that's going to be quite uh, quite something for down on the, on East Lawn. So yeah, do check it out when you uh, when you visit. That sounds amazing, and I have to say, Air Pillow, that sounds my kind of place. I think that's where I'm going to be this summer. But thank you both very much, and thank you also from you know the gardens team for all the incredible work you're doing restoring again our beautiful glass houses. So thank you both very much. So here we are in the flower garden, which is looking amazing at the moment. Um, And in particular, I am standing by what we call the dipping pool bed. So four beds that surround our circular dipping pool, which is the central feature of the flower garden. And I am uh, standing next to another central feature of the flower garden, Yoko Briggs, who is the supervisor. And Yoko, you've done an absolutely, well, you and the team have done an absolutely fabulous job this year. So, Yoko, I wonder if you tell us, what, what are your favourite bits of the flower garden at the moment? Oh, gosh, it's difficult to say. It's all my favourite. <laughs> Everything is just doing so well at the moment. But particularly, I love this combination with combination of Aurea, Zilia and Heliptrum bed, and which is blue and pink and white colour of combination of colour. It looks beautiful, and the bees absolutely love them too. No, absolutely, and the, the, what we're looking at is a small, curiously shaped bed because one part of it is curved and the other parts are straight lined, but it's this wonderful play of blues and whites and pinks, and then it's sort of at the back, there's all the lovely heritage sweet peas that you, and you can get this rich scent coming off it, and as Yoko described, there's a wealth of bumblebees on it, but there are also, it's sort of framed by these wonderful whites and pinks of Helipterum sensation giant. And uh, Yoko, one of your other many skills is dried flowers. Yeah, so we just started uh, do proper dry, dried flower display at the Harvest Festival, which is usually in October. And we absolutely enjoyed doing it. So, yeah, and we got uh, rooms drying seeds at the moment. So we just use that room for the drying flowers. And, yeah, we I, I'm still learning and we just dry anything I can think of <laughs> at the moment. And, uh, yeah, sometimes doesn't work, sometimes works. And, yeah, so it's... And the helipterum are real... Because they're like little everlasting flowers that you'll see and if I yeah. I'll just bend down and give them a rustle and for so it's already papery kind of texture still in the ground before they you know if you if you if you before you dry them but it's dried really really well and I still got some last year's one but yeah still it looks beautiful in my house yeah and the 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 actual flowers that we're talking about the all layer is this wonderful frothy white it's got quite a a flat flower head if i was to describe it sort of a cross between uh, a sort of wild carrot and a hydrangea flower in a strange way and then we have the 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 blues and pinks of the gilia uh, mixed in it's really it's a lovely frothy scene 
but also, Yoko, if we come over here, what have we got growing here? Yeah, this is called painted sage, and some people call clary sage. And uh, yeah, you can hear them. That's just bees. Just absolutely love them. We'll just give it a bee listen. There are bumblebees all over us, and it's sort of purples and pinks and whites. And that was even you just had a little tree bumblebee there, and the bed again of of whites and pinks, very different flower. What have we got over there? That's sweet William. Yeah, so we normally uh, saw them previous year. So mm. actually, uh, we saw them saw the seeds last week. Actually, last <laughs> we saw the seeds for, for the next, next year. <laughs> right. Last week, and so we just grow them over the winter. And just yeah, have, uh, give us a lovely early summer color, and it's absolutely uh, smells absolutely beautiful. So wonderful. Well, Yoko, once again, thank you so much for your hard work, and it is looking absolutely beautiful. So I must implore, and if any of you are planning to come to Helicon in the next week or two, make sure you pay a visit to the flower garden and see what. Yoko and the team have been up to. Thanks a lot, Yoko. Thank you, Alisa. So I am now in the paddock area, um, standing next to what we refer to winningly as uh, the pig palace, and uh, there's an array of very sleepy, very muddy-looking um, ginger piglets uh, lying in the sunshine. Uh, there's a, a mother sow, uh, <clears throat> again, ears twitching, uh, but her beautiful ginger coat, slightly lagged in mud and sand and straw, but again, looking extremely happy. But I'm he- here also with a, a much cleaner looking uh, organism. I'm here with Louis from the um, home farm team. And uh, Louis, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the piglets and um, how many we've got and how old they are and the breed. Could you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, of course. So we've got uh, our two Tamworth sows. They're the mums. They're first-time mums, actually, so we're really happy that they've done well with their first two litters. Uh, We've got 15 pigs in total, so one of them's got uh, seven and one of them's got uh, eight. Well done. Yeah, good math. and yeah, it's really nice that their litter mates themselves. So they've grown up together here. We've had them here for a couple of years now. And uh, and yeah, I I don't know if anyone can tell whose pigs are whose any more piglets because they all seem to just muck in together. But they all seem really content and happy here. So the Tamworths, can you tell us a little bit about them? They're quite rare, aren't they? They are. They're a, they are a high priority breed on the uh, RBST watch list, which is the list that. Um, that keeps us in track of which animals need to be uh, protected from extinction. And the uh, RBSC stands for? Oh, the Rare Breed Survival Trust. So they're they're an organisation we work with that prevent the extinction of our uh, native breeds of livestock. So that's pigs, sheep and cattle and horses and everything. Um, yeah, so they are a rare breed. They're a great pig to have, though, because um, firstly they're ginger, which means they don't get sunburnt so easily as a pink pig would. But also they're really good at sort of foraging, uh, which you know a modern breed wouldn't be so good at because they're 
sort of more dependent on on like pre-made food whereas our pigs are really good at harvesting their own food so grasses and all sorts of lovely different plants so which brings me on to my next question because while they're obviously enjoying the pig palace and the wallow etc they are going to move to another pastures new at heligan soon can you tell us a little bit about that please louis yeah, so we have another area for the pigs, which is a nice field, which is called West Lawn. It's about three acres of pasture, which is there just for the pigs. So um, as people may have seen before, if pigs stay in the same place for too long, they make a real muddy mess. But um, they do enjoy doing that, but they also <laughs> enjoy moving on somewhere else so that they can continue eating all the lovely plants that were there before. So what we plan to do is put the houses of the pigs in the middle and then rotate slices of the field round in a big circle so that by the time they've gone round all of them they get back to the first one and it's ready to munch on again excellent and will will they all be going out there yeah all the piglets and their mums will be going out there um and yeah hopefully they'll be uh visible to everyone who visits and they'll be very happy to see them having such a lovely time munching all the things and sunbathing <laughs> Sounds like the perfect summer. Um, when might we expect that they've got another couple of weeks in the pig palace? Yeah, I would imagine so. We just uh, after this dry spell, we need to just uh, we've had a bit of rain now, and we're hoping that it'll just make all of the plants grow a little bit taller and more lush for them to eat. If if it's too short, then they tend to go back to their rooting ways and turn the turf over, which we don't want them to do so much. So yeah, so so we'll have to play it by ear a bit, but it would be in the next few weeks, I hope. Lovely. Thanks very much, Louis. And um, God, I just can't. I think I'm just going to stay here and look at these beautiful pigs for half an hour because they are so gorgeous. But thank you very, very much, Louis. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing them on West Lawn. Lovely. Thanks. A very big thank you to Andrew, Yoko, Louis, Andy and Paul, our contributors. I'm Alistair Moore, head of gardens and estate at the Lost Gardens of Heligan in Cornwall. Do please like and subscribe to this podcast and you can join me again for the next episode of Beauty in All Things as the summer turns.